you wonder how the ancient truth of the Bible intersects with today's news? Do you believe in God's promises to the people and the land of Israel? Welcome to the Lone Star Podcast, a weekly conversation to expand your mind and encourage your soul. Our hosts live in the two Lone Star states, Rabbi Dove Lipman in Israel and Pastor Trey Graham in Texas. This podcast is your opportunity to learn the truth about the God of Israel from two people who love Israel. Please follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new weekly episodes are ready. You ready to be encouraged? Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham. We do welcome you to this edition of the Lone Star Podcast. This is Pastor Trey Graham in Texas, my good friend Rabbi Dove Lipman in the land of Israel. As we look forward to Shabbat, then let's talk about the Torah portion, the Bible passage you will be discussing in synagogue this week. Truma is the name of it, the Hebrew word truma, and translated into English, gift. And it comes from Exodus chapters 25, 26, and 27. And our Christian and Jewish listeners will recall where we are in the Bible story that the people of Israel have left slavery in Egypt. They have crossed over the Red Sea through the miracle of God, parting the waters, and now they are making their way toward the promised land, and the Lord asks them to build a place of worship. In English, we call it the tabernacle. The Hebrew word is mishkan, and it's going to be built as a place where the Jewish people can bring their sacrifices, bring their offerings to the Lord, worship the Lord, and meet the Lord personally. And so let's, Rabbi, begin just looking through a few verses. Exodus 25, verse 2, the Lord has said to Moses this, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. And then it goes into what ways you can give offerings. But what I want to emphasize here at this first verse that we'll look at is our offerings to the Lord are supposed to be voluntary. They're supposed to be cheerful. It's not a duty. It's not an obligation to give our offerings to the Lord. And of course, you think first and foremost about financial offerings, but this could be of our time and our energy and our brain power and everything else, the use of our talents. The offerings that we give to the Lord are to be voluntary. The Lord even says, every man whose heart moves him. So I want us to remind ourselves that we get to give to the Lord. We don't have to give to the Lord. Yeah, and the commentaries all focus on some very specifics in these words, especially the words, uh, you know, dedication from your heart, libo, uh, that it comes from the heart, which, which, which relates to two things. Uh, you can have a person who donates a huge amount of money to an organization or to a synagogue or to a church, uh, but does so with a, with a begrudging heart, does so feeling somewhat not happy about what he's doing, and, that's, and, and then compare that to someone who just donates a little bit, either financially or their time, and does so with great joy and a full heart. The second is the one that's more valued by the Lord because it's all about the heart. It's all about giving uh, what we can give. And that's why it emphasizes that point, that it's coming from the heart. You mentioned the point that it's you know, voluntary. It's, you're coming forward with what you can. And there's one other part of this verse, which the commentaries focus on, and that is in the precise translation from the Hebrew. Normally, uh, when you're talking about donations, it would say in the, in the fifth word in Hebrew, it would say, v'yitnuli, they will give it to me. But it doesn't say that. It says v'yikhuli, which means, and they will take from me. 
And the commentaries ask, why is it saying take from me? It should be give to me. And the commentaries explain that God is teaching in these words that when we give, uh, whether it's charity or of our time, helping others, yes, we're giving, but in actuality, we're taking. Uh, we gain from that act. You know, sometimes you think, I'm giving of my money, I'm giving of my time, oh, I've lost it, it's gone, what have I done? And you're actually taking. You become a better person. You become more spiritual. You become more godly. And that's why it says, take for yourself. Because God is letting us know that when you donate voluntarily with your heart, you're a person who is transformed as a result, and you've taken something from it for yourself. For our Christian audience, they may be familiar with 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. It says, Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And that's echoing the point you're making there, that this is a cheerful blessing to give to the Lord's work, not a duty or a responsibility. And as you continue on through Exodus 25, the next few verses get very specific, and the contributions or the offerings that these people were called to give to the Lord, it mentions gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet material, fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, porpoise skins, acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for anointing oil, onyx stones. All of these are very expensive and very valuable. So, Rabbi, give us the history lesson. This is a group of people now wandering through the desert who had just left 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Where's the wealth coming from to be able to provide for all of this? It's a great question, and it's a question which, as a pastor, at some point hits everyone. Uh, you know, as children, you read the story, and you don't really think about these things, but as you get older, all of a sudden it hits you, where is this all from? If you go all the way back to Genesis, when God makes a covenant with Abraham, which includes talking about his children being persecuted and enslaved in a foreign land for hundreds of years, God says in Hebrew, they will leave Berachush Gadol, they're going to leave with great wealth. If you go back to the Exodus story, uh, we, are under, we understand that this actually took place as the Jews left, or some say even during the plague of darkness. The Jews who were persecuted and enslaved for all of these years, they actually took with them things that uh, belonged to the Egyptians. One could say payment for all their hundreds of years of, of work. And this was something which God said would happen from the beginning. They will leave with great wealth. And the purpose of that wealth wasn't for self-indulgence, but it was to be able to contribute towards this tabernacle. And, and that's where it came from. And if you read the verses, you'll see that they left with materials. This is all part of God's plan for them to be able to build the tabernacle. Like you said, all this detail of these materials and they came from Egypt, and it was part of God's blessing to enable the people to build a home for God, uh, even while they're in this temporary uh, dwelling situation uh, in the desert. The story that you referenced might be from Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 35. It says, The sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have their request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. So we're reading Exodus 25, but this reference I'm just reading now is Exodus 12. And this might be the answer to the question that the Egyptians voluntarily gave some of their wealth 
as payment, as retribution, as reward, as charity, as a gift to the people of Israel. And so the people of Israel don't keep it for themselves for personal use, but they receive it from the Egyptians, turn around and give it to the Lord for the building of the tabernacle. Exactly. And the way the verse describes it, you actually can see the miraculous element of it. Where do we hear of a time where a people that are enslaving others and persecuting others uh, adhere to a request to give them some of the materials? And, and, and this is in a time where there was great tension uh, between the Jews and the Egyptians, although one could also remember that the Egyptians went through as a people went through a process during the Ten Plagues. And this the verse that you quoted happens towards the end of the Ten Plagues uh, as the Jews are preparing for their exodus. The Egyptians at that point were telling Pharaoh, let them go, there's something here. Uh, this is an impossible situation, we can't continue this way. And that's all part of God's work in bringing the Egyptians to a point where they would give the people uh, these materials. And again, with a focus that the goal is that they should be able to build this tabernacle and to be able to have a place, which is a dwelling place for God, uh, while they're in the desert. As we continue to talk about this week's Torah portion and, and Exodus 25, a very important verse comes next in our study, Exodus 25, verse 8. The Lord says to Moses, Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them or I may live within them. This is a promise of the Lord for personal relationship. We say often that we are not longing for a distant God. We are longing for a relatable God, a God who is bigger and higher and smarter and stronger and more majestic, of course, but he's not distant. He's not aloof from us. He wants to have a personal relationship with us. And this verse, Exodus 25, verse 8, tells us, The Lord said, I will dwell among them. Talk about it. I'm so happy that you uh, focused on this verse, because from my perspective, this is the most important verse. It's hard to choose more important verses than others, but the verse that really captures the message of Truma, which is a parsha, which a portion which goes into very technical details about the building of the tabernacle. This verse starts out by saying, build for me a temple or a sanctuary, which is singular, that I may dwell in them. What is them, bitochem? There's no them, there's one building that's being built. And the commentaries and our sages and our tradition teach that God is saying to each individual person, build for me a temple. Build for me a temple in your own bodies. Build for me a temple in your own homes. Build for me a temple in your own communities. And then I can dwell in them. God seeks to be within all of us. God seeks to be together with all of us, and we are the ones who need to open the door for God to come in. We need to build ourselves into being receptacles for God. We need to build our homes into places that are spiritual and holy, where God's presence can dwell, and that's what it's ultimately all about. We're, we're physical human beings put on a physical earth with an opportunity to connect to the, the divine. And this verse, can, we, it's our responsibility to do things in order to enable God to come into ourselves and to come into our homes. And if we are doing things that we should not be doing, uh, then we're preventing God from coming into our beings. If our homes are places where spiritual things, unholy things are taking place, then we're preventing God's presence from really residing uh, there. So this is a, a very important verse which 
sort of distracts us a little bit from all the detail uh, which we have in this is portion, which is complicated for us to understand why we need those details, and also doesn't necessarily apply to us in our times when we're not building a tabernacle, but the concept of focusing and spending the time and building a place within ourselves and our homes for God, that is what has to stand out uh, from this portion. And I don't have a doubt that it's a, a Christian uh, teaching and value as well. You're exactly right. The idea of being able to have a relationship with God that he would dwell among us. Of course, we believe Jesus came to earth to dwell among us as the Messiah. And we also read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, it's talking about us coming to the Lord's presence. It's, this verse says, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And when we talk about the Mishkan, the tabernacle, I want us to talk about the different elements, the different pieces of furniture, because I think they're all very significant. But before we get into those, I'll ask you this general question. When we read these chapters, Exodus 25, 26, 27, the details are so specific. The Lord told Moses to tell the people to build this worship place, this tabernacle, but he didn't say, you guys make up a good plan, whatever you feel like, whatever your architects say. Every detail, the size, the color, the type of materials, so specific. Why is that? Why did the Lord have such exact instructions for the building of the tabernacle? So what's interesting is that we don't even understand why. Uh, you know, why these details are necessary in terms of why does it have to be this length versus that length? This, But uh, I once had a colleague, I think, because uh, it was more recent times, as you'll hear from the analogy, and he said, have you ever sent an email to someone and all of a sudden you get this message back, fatal error, you cannot send the email. And you look and you see that you know, uh, 15 out of 16 of the letters that you wrote were correct, but you accidentally pressed on a D instead of an S, which are right next to each other on the screen, and the email cannot go through. God created us. He created our souls. He created our bodies. And he understands what is necessary for us to connect spiritually. And, therefore, and he gives us the precise details. This is what needs to be done in order for my presence to be able to rest properly. And our job at that point is not to question uh, the details, but just to adhere to what he says and know that that email can only go through if we follow uh, those instructions. And you know what, Pastor? It's possible that it really doesn't ultimately make a difference if it was one hand breadth or a hand breadth and a half, which is the measurement that's used, or if it was this material or that. But God is teaching us that discipline. God is telling us, I, I'm creating a system where it can only work if you follow what I tell you. Uh, I'm the one who's the guide here. Uh, I'm telling you, follow these instructions and you will connect to God. You will achieve eternity. And now it's up to the human being, people who do not like being given instructions, people who do not like being told what to do, uh, to be mature enough and responsible enough and understand that if God is telling you this is what you must do, uh, that this is what you must do. How would uh, your faith look at this kind of uh, detail and, and the concept of God saying it must be this way or it can't work? I think I would reply by telling you that some people have this fear. You've probably heard this. 
I don't need to pray to God about my small issues because God has the big stuff to worry about, the wars and the famines and all the big things. He doesn't have time or he doesn't care or it's not important for me to bring him my issue about what college I should go to or what job I should take. But when you remind everyone that the Heavenly Father loves his children individually, that he cares about even the small details of the building of his worship center, he also cares about the small details of our life. So I do agree with your teaching that it's about trusting the Lord even when we don't understand all the reasons why, but I also think it is an explanation to us that the Lord is a God of details. He is not a God of disorder. He's a God of order, and he cares about even the what we would call the minute things. And when I begin to seek the will of God and ask him what I should do about a career or a college or who I should marry or what house I should buy, how I should spend my time and how I should spend my money, how I should serve him within the church, he cares about even the small things of my life, which will teach me to trust him in the big things of my life. Absolutely. It's a brilliant, brilliant lesson, a lesson that we certainly uh, share. Yes, those, those details really do matter, and God really does care and, and want us to turn to Him. Uh, the second part about, about the details in our lives, and it's something which uh, all of us can learn from this section for sure. Let's talk about a few of the pieces of furniture. There's really two sections to the tabernacle. There's the part outside in what you might call the courtyard area, and then inside the tabernacle tent, which has the two sections. Outside of in the tabernacle area, you have the bronze altar and the bronze laver, where the burnt offerings were made, and then where the washing. And so there's a place here as you progress inward toward the Holy of Holies, which is the furthest inward, as you're moving forward, you see, I believe, a progression that there is an offering for sin given, and then you are made clean, and then you are able to enter the holiness of God, which is the first section, and inside the first section of the tent of the tabernacle, you have the three elements, the golden lampstand called the menorah, You've got the altar of incense and the table of showbread or the table of the Lord's presence. And we believe, and I know that you agree, that the lampstand is the light of God. And that's why we think that Jesus said about himself that I am the light of the world. He was talking as a reference back to the menorah, the altar of incense, that our prayers go up to God, and the table of showbread, the loaves of bread, 12 of them, one for each of the 12 tribes, is God's provision for us. Again, another teaching of Jesus, when he taught what's called the model prayer or the Lord's prayer, Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, which we think is a reference back to the manna in the wilderness and to the showbread here in the tabernacle. We'll talk about the other items in the most holy place or the holy of holies in a moment, but your reactions to the meanings of these different elements within the courtyard and the holy place. The first that strikes us is the place of washing before entering into the holier part of the tabernacle and eventually the temple, and that is that place to wash their hands, to wash their feet. The notion of preparation, the notion that we don't just walk into God's house. A person can't just walk into synagogue or church. Um, There's preparation along the way. If you come and visit Israel or visit Jerusalem and go to the southern wall of the temple, you'll actually see that the staircase 
was done in a way where one step is thicker, next one is thinner, next one is thicker, next one is thinner. You can't just walk up the staircase without focusing on uh, the stairs, otherwise you'll trip. And that was also for people to, to gain focus. You don't just walk into the temple without your mind being focused, just uh, lost in your own personal thoughts. There has to be that preparation. And therefore, we have the sink to wash our hands before you can go in. And that's something which 100% applies today. Whether it is actually physically washing your hands just to sort of feel yourself purifying yourself before you go to pray, or whether it's mentally preparing. In today's world, it's shutting off your cell phone uh, before you walk into a house of prayer. But doing all the things that are necessary to cut off from the rest of your life and really walk into a place of spirituality and worship, uh, that's a very important lesson uh, that we take from the structure uh, of the temple and the notion of there is a, a specific command from God to have that water source there to prepare yourself before you move into the holier part of the temple. We read Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 of the New Testament, Christians do, and it says, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. And so we agree with this idea that there's a cleansing element, getting yourself right and your heart right before you enter the Lord's presence. And we're talking about the tabernacle, the Mishkan, which was this movable sanctuary. But these same elements are copied later on in the more permanent structure, the Jewish temple, the first one built by King Solomon, the second one later built by King Herod. When you talk about the menorah, the golden lampstand, Rabbi, you've taught us about the Hanukkah celebration, that it is a reminder that God did a miracle to let the oil last for the eight days. So when you talk about the light of the world or the light of God, what is the symbolism of the menorah? Very important symbol uh, in Judaism. It's actually the symbol uh, of the state of Israel, the, the menorah. The idea is that the house of God is where God's presence may rest, and it relates to spirituality, it relates to the wisdom of the Bible, but that light goes outward. Uh, it's a light which shines outside of the temple. It's the light which people outside the temple can gain from. It's not something which is limited uh, in the temple I itself. It's something which is supposed to give us light all the time and be there for us to tap into. There are a lot of writings in our tradition about it focusing on the wisdom of the Bible and, and, and how it brings light into our lives. And, you know, sometimes people think of spirituality, uh, you hear people say, oh, going back to the dark ages where people were not enlightened, but today we are enlightened and we understand, and they don't realize that it's the exact opposite, that a life without God, a life without the Bible uh, is darkness, and that this is what gives us light, and therefore that is the important symbol uh, of the menorah. There are, there are many who talk about the number of branches in the menorah. Uh, the menorah in the temple and tabernacle had seven branches in our tradition that relates to seven elements of wisdom that are in the world uh, that all come together and focus on a central point, which is God, that yes, there is the wisdom of the world, and yes, we should study and understand it more, but not from a perspective which takes us further away from God and allows man to sort of puff out his chest and say, look how great we are, but to understand God even more and to understand his ways 
uh, even more. And that's the symbolism of all the wisdoms of the world coming together, uh, focused on God in the tabernacle, in the temple, and reminding us uh, that a life of spirituality uh, uh, brings us light. And that's why you'll see the symbol of the menorah in the state of Israel. You'll see it very prominent in Judaism. And uh, I do wonder uh, what role that has uh, in, in the Christian faith as well as a symbol and in terms of its message. We see the menorah having seven candle stands as being evidence of the perfect number. Seven is the number of God, the perfect number. And I mentioned to you before that we quote Jesus. He said in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so we also see light as the demonstration of God's presence. It is his characteristic. And we are to be the light of the world, to take the light into a dark world. We talked, before we discussed the parashah, we talked about the tragic incident in Florida. And that is the example of the darkness of the world in which we live. It's dark. It's evil to take innocent lives. And we who love God, we who love the Bible, we who have the light need to demonstrate our light in the middle of a dark world. And that's where God allows us to see his light and then we can reflect that light to the world around us. As we move forward from the holy place, the HaKodesh, into the Holy of Holies, the Kodesh HaKodeshim, there's the curtain in between and you move forward into the Holy of Holies. And we know from Rabbi's teaching that only the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, could go into the Holy of Holies one day a year on the Day of Atonement called Yom Kippur and in the tabernacle and then in the first temple, but not in the second temple, I want our listeners to remember, was a very important item called the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Lord. Inside of this had the tablets of God, the bowl of manna that was also in there and the, and the rod of Aaron were taught was inside of there. And so this is the place where the Lord chose to physically dwell on the earth. He said, I don't want to be distant from you. I want to be relatable. I want to be known by you. So teach us some of the importance of what we call the Ark of the Covenant. Certainly you're right, Pastor. It's the most important or most prominent of the vessels uh, that exist in the temple. It's the holiest place in the temple for sure, and clearly over history is a vessel in the temple which uh, people were aware of and have talked about. It even led to the cinema and Raiders of the Lost Ark and the like, where people do understand that there was this special ark that existed. There are two parts of the command that, that we notice. One is in chapter 25, verse 10, when it says to build the, the ark, the terminology that's used is ve'asu in the Hebrew, uh, which is plural, as opposed to other times that we have commands of vessels where it's ve'asita, which is, both mean you, but one's mean you in singular and one's plural. Here when it says ve'asu in plural, it's telling us that the ark, which symbolizes the Torah, which symbolizes the Bible, that's out there for every single person to connect to. Whether you've grown up with it or you haven't, whether you are of greater intelligence or lesser intelligence, whether uh, you have a greater memory or a weaker memory, uh, none of this matters. Uh, the, the Bible and the, what we call the Torah is there for everyone. Uh, to make a part of their lives, and that's why the command is for everyone, in the plural, uh, to be part of its construction. But then, if you take a look at its measurements, also in that same verse, verse 10, you will see that it was made two and a half, one and a half, by one and a half, 
all of a sudden, every single measurement is only a half measurement. You don't see that in any of the other vessels uh, of the tabernacle. And here again, the commentaries explain that when it comes to Torah, when it comes to Bible, when it comes to studying the Word of God, we always have to view ourselves as if we're not complete. No one can ever say, okay, I've mastered it, I got it, now I can just move on with my life. There has to be daily study, there has to be weekly study, there has to be constant striving to understand more. We're only half, we're not complete. We have to always continue in that process. And this is something which is critical. We, we view uh, Torah study and Bible study as a critical component of our lives. We have all kinds of programs for daily study, uh, people who study a full page of the Talmud every day, people who study the weekly Torah portion every day, people who study Maimonides every single day. People choose what, it, what they want to be their daily study, but it has to be part of their lives because no one is ever at the highest level of wisdom. Even the greatest sages, the Hebrew word that we use for them is Talmida Chacham, which means student of the wise. They're not the wise, they're the student of the wise. We're always students and we're always learning. And these are some of the things that we take from the actual words in the command about building uh, the ark, recognizing the role that Bible study and Torah study has to play uh, in our lives. I think it's a beautiful parallel for Christians as well, that we seek to have the light of God that we discussed already, but we also want to be in the presence of God. We can quote from Psalm 100, let us enter his presence with thanksgiving, enter his courts with praise. And so we have the access to God because of his grace, because of his allowance of us. We believe because of our faith in Jesus, we have the relationship with God and the access to God. And so as we wrap up today's conversation, Rabbi, I think I'd like you to tie the two conversations together. We had the tragic discussion at the beginning of the loss of innocent life in Florida, and now we have the offer to be in God's presence if we will follow the light, if we will humble ourselves and give our lives to Him. So how do we do that? How do we give ourselves to God and be the light of the world when we're surrounded by such evil? Actually, I feel when we see the evil and we see what's out there, uh, I almost feel like how can we not be spiritual and, and come close to God and recognize that when it's all said and done, uh, all we have is Him. Uh, if we focus on purely a physical earth and physical mankind, you see darkness and you see evil. And the only sanctuary that we have uh, is God and, and, and spirituality and, and recognizing that we need Him, recognizing that there's something beyond what we experience in front of our eyes here on this world. So I, I, it's hard for me to even see it. Uh, I understand questions, of course, which come when people see tragedy, but I feel like those tragedies necessitate the spirituality and, and the relationship with God. And going back to what we said before about him being this, the source of that comfort, you know, we Jewish people for 2,000 years were uh, experienced persecution of the worst kind. And yet, Shabbat after Shabbat, Saturday after Saturday, we were in temple and temples and synagogues praying and studying and hearing the words of the Torah. And I think that for those 2,000 years, we felt comfort. 
uh, in those words, knowing that there are prophecies about how things are going to get better and that God is there for us and, and God is our partner. And uh, that is what I hope uh, everyone will do in response to uh, the tragedy in Florida as well, uh, is to recognize that we as human beings on our own, we're lost and there is, are no answers and we're lost and we're just in the hands of, of darkness and, and, and evil and suspect to whatever could happen here. Uh, but if you have spirituality in your life, you have God in your life, you have that rock. First of all, you have that support system while you're here, and you also recognize that there's far more to come beyond what we experience uh, in, in our lives in this world. And I, I certainly, uh, from what I've read, uh, understand that, that Christianity has a certain, uh, has a similar perspective. We do. We understand that we live in a sinful world, a fallen world, but we believe there is the opportunity to experience the light of God. And again, Jesus called himself the light of the world. And we believe, as you said, there is more after this life, that there is a life with God for those who have placed their faith in him. And so we grieve with those who grieve and we rejoice with those who rejoice. And today is a day of grieving for those who have lost loved ones in Florida. But it's also a time to rejoice because we have access to God's presence through his light. And so I want to thank our listeners for joining us every week here on the Lone Star Podcast. I apologize for some of our technical difficulties. The phone line from Texas to Israel doesn't always work as well as we hoped. But my friend, Rabbi Lippman, it's always great to study the Word of God with you. Great to talk with you again as well. Our, our prayers are with everyone in the United States and with the families in particular. And may we only share good news one to the other in the future. Shabbat Shalom, my friend. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for joining us for the Lone Star Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new episodes are ready. Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham next time to expand your mind and encourage your soul. May the Lord bless you and draw you to himself this week.